My name is Tim Chin, and I am the discipleship pastor here at Village Church. If you've not seen me in the last few months, that's because I've been in the back with the kids, having more fun than you've been having up here. Just kidding. Well, many years ago, before we had GPS, there's a story of a young boy and his father who traveled to a distant land in a sailing boat. And the little boy was amazed at all the work that the sailors did every day to make this ship continue to go. And he was very curious. He, he would watch all the activity. He'd watch all the things that the sailors was doing. And he noticed that every night the captain of the ship would come out on deck and he would point this funny looking object up at the sky. And he didn't know what that was all about. So he asked his dad. And his dad said these words to him. He said, son, that funny looking instrument is called a sextant. With it, the captain looks at the stars and finds out where we are and if we're going in the right direction. Folks, that is what corporate worship is all about. That is one of the many things that corporate worship does. It gives us a kind of a, a reset and it checks, are we headed in the right direction in our spiritual journey? You know, last week, Pastor Matt started a, a, this series of messages on corporate worship. And his message last week was about how Jesus transforms our worship. It sets it apart from what it used to be in the Old Testament. So today I want to build on what his foundation that he, he laid last week and talk more about our corporate worship and what corporate worship really does for the body and for the individual as we join together. Let me just remind you of a few things that Matt said last week. Worship, he said, does not equal music. And we often are guilty of thinking, well, the music is the worship. And he was very clear that worship is a, is, uh, music is a part of worship, but our entire lives should be a worship event when it comes to the Lord. He also said this, feelings do not necessarily equal fruitfulness or righteousness. While emotions are important, emotions are a funny thing. Sometimes they really don't indicate what's really going on. Just because we see emotions doesn't mean that we're sensing the Holy Spirit is working. And without emotions, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's not worshiping uh, and, and meeting with us. Then he said, our Western culture influences more than we want to acknowledge. And I really believe that's true. That this culture that we live in influences us much more than we want to admit. You know, we have an individualism type of mentality rather than what I call a tribal or a communal mindset, which means we're, we live in a culture where it's all about the person, about the individual, about the me. You know, one of the things that children learn very early in, in their lives is the me, 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 mine, mine, mine. If it's yours, it's mine. If it's mine, it's mine. It's me. And we grow up with that mentality and we don't have what developing countries and, and world uh, systems have, which is a communal or a tribal mentality. What does it mean for us rather than just the individual? Busyness is a part of our normal life. You know, and I know it's not just me. We're all busy, busier than we want to be. And then consumerism is so inside of all of us that we have to fight it intentionally and deliberately to kill it. 
Because we have this consumer thing just ingrained in each of us. The last thing that Matt talked about last week was how true corporate worship always takes place on God's terms and in his presence. So for today, I want to build on those kind of preliminary remarks that Matt made last week. And I want to build on this and talk more about corporate worship. Now, the Bible does talk about two kinds of worship. The Bible talks about private worship or what maybe we would call individual worship. But it also talks in many, many, many different places about corporate worship. What does it look like to worship God as God's people? And so for today, I want to focus my attention on that. Both individual and corporate worship are important and they're necessary in the lives of God's children. Both contain similar elements, but they are for slightly different reasons. Proper corporate worship always flows out of a healthy and, and vibrant private, corporate, a private worship life of God's people. And for this message, I'm going to continue to focus just on the corporate aspect of our worship. And I want to talk about just two things in, in kind of a big picture. The first one is, what are the proper elements when it comes to our corporate worship? When we talk about, well, the church came together, or we're coming together as a church to worship, what are the pieces of that worship? Now, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we, those of us who have studied the Bible, who have studied church history, we have to honestly say, we don't really know exactly what the corporate worship looked like in the early church. We don't know, you know, did they have three hymns, or did they have three psalms, or did they have the offering? You know, what was their protocol? We don't really know. But we do have hints, and we have glimpses of what the early church did when they came together. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, we read these words from Scripture. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together um, and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their, their proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's four elements that are mentioned in that passage about what was unique about the early church when they came together. Now, that's, that helps us. But what also helps us is the early church fathers and what they said about what, what it looked like when the early church came together. There was an early church father named Justin Martyr. Uh, he described the early church, and he described what the early church did, and at the end of what he called the first apology, he described what it was like when the early church came together. I know this is a little long. I put it on the screen 
Some of us are visible, uh, visual learners and some of, some of us are audible learners. So it's on the screen for you to follow along. Um, so let me just read what Justin Martyr said the early church service looked like. On the day called Sunday, there is gathered together in the same place of all who live in a given city or a rural district. In the memoirs of the apostles, notice that's the New Testament writings, the scriptures, or the writings of the prophets are read, and as long as, as, long as time permits. Aren't you glad we don't do that? And when the reader cease, ceases, the president or the pastor in, in a discourse admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things. Notice he preaches. Next, we all rise together and send up prayers. And when, the, when we cease from our prayer, bread is presented with wine and water. Now that's how they did communion. And the president, in the same manner, sends up prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people sing, to, sing out in assent, saying the amen. A distribution and participation of the elements for which thanks have been given are made uh, to each person. And those who are not present, they are sent, those elements are sent then by the deacons. Those who have means and are willing, each according to his own choice, gives what he wills, and what is collected is deposited. Notice that's an offering. And the president, uh, uh, with the president, and he provides for the orphans and the widows, those who are in need on account of sickness or of some other cause. Those who are in bonds, strangers who are sojourning, and in word he becomes a protector of all who are in need. And we all make our assembly in common on Sunday which is the first day on which God changed the darkness and matter and made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, arose from the dead on the same day. So with what Justin Martyr said and what we have in the book of Acts, we see there are certain characteristics and there are certain elements that should be present when the church comes together in a corporate worship setting. So let me just share with you in no particular order Okay, just because I say these in an order, it's got to be some order, okay? But it doesn't mean that these are the most important because they're at the top and least important because they're at the bottom of this list. But we have this, we have these, these elements. Teaching, the exposition of Scripture. We saw that in the Acts passage. We saw that in the Justin Martyr statement. Fellowship. Where the community of God comes together in the breaking of bread, in personal ministry, in the one another's of the New Testament, where we encourage one another. That is a part of our corporate worship. And then there's the symbols. The symbols of communion and baptism. Here at Village Church, we will usually, usually, and I, and I have to be careful because you can't say always, but usually we will have either uh, communion at, at our corporate gathering, or we'll have baptism. Today we'll have baptism. And then there's the offering. Corporate worship, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, has always involved some aspect of sacrificial giving. I love this uh, story that I'm about to share with you from the Old Testament. It's from the book of 2 Samuel. 
David, King David, has just committed this terrible sin of numbering God's people, and God told him not to do that. He did it anyway, and, and so God, God chastens David, and sadly, the people are punished because of their king. But at the end of this punishment, David, David repents, and David says, I need to worship the Lord. I need to make a sacrificial offering before my God because I have sinned. And so this is what we read in uh, 1 Samuel 24, 24, where David wants to make this offering, and there is a guy there, a Jebusite. By the way, Jebusite means he's from you know, the area that wasn't really Jewish, but he is a follower of God, uh, Arun, Aruna. Um, and out of respect for his king, he says, David, let me give you what you need to offer to the Lord. Listen to what David says. But the king, but the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. The question is, when we come to our offering, come to our time of giving back to the Lord, what is our offering costing us? How is it sacrificial for us today? Often we take for granted what it means to come together. The, the unity, the beauty, the significance, the specialness of coming together as God's people to worship God. And, and I have to admit, I work here. So coming here on Sunday is the thing I do. But I don't come with the right attitude or I don't come with the right heart. So I want to talk about that today. Maybe you're like me, and you you come to church on Sunday morning because that's what you've always done, or that's what you've been told to do. But you kind of lost how special it really is. So I want to just share with you a couple things about this offering, about these sacrifices when it comes to our offering. There's an offering of praise. You know, that's what we normally think of as our singing time. Songs of adoration and praise and thanksgiving to God. Now, I don't know about you. Some of you are great singers, all right? I get that. Some of us are not great singers, and maybe some of you are in, you know, in more in my camp. And for those that, that are great singers, you have to sacrificially put up with us who don't sing so well. You know what I mean? But we still sing out. Because for us, in spite, of, in spite of the challenge it is to hit the right notes and to sing the right uh, words, we love to praise our God. God's people have always sung these songs of praise and adoration. And our songs, whether they're Old Testament, New Testament, corporate worship, they tend to fall into two categories. Whether they're psalms, whether they're the old hymns that we used to sing or whether they're the new praise choruses, contemporary songs, they fall into two categories. They're either songs about God and about his goodness or they're songs directed towards God. And you'll, it, it, I challenge you to listen that one is not better than the other, by the way. 
Listen, the songs that we sing here usually fall in, into a combination of those, but we sing either about God and his goodness, or we sing to God and about our heart and how we feel about him and what we love and, and want from him or for him. Then there's the offering of prayer. Do you ever consider prayer as an offering? Originally, there was great reservation in the Old Testament for people to come to God in prayer. But now, like Matt talked about last week, Jesus has opened the door where we can come to God with boldness, with confidence, because he's a loving father who cares about our needs, unlike what the Old Testament people thought about. Then there's the offering of substance. Yes, that's the offering plate or the offering basket or whatever we call it in our church. The offering of substance. God's people have always brought some kind of substance before God. In the Old Testament, it was animals. And then there was first fruits. Then there was money. I'm glad that, aren't you glad that we don't have to give animals anymore? But, but here's the great news. In certain countries, that's exactly what people do. They bring a goat or a sheep or a chicken or a cow, and they will give it to the church for various reasons. It's still a viable means in which we sacrificially give back to God for God's family, for God's people, and for the corporate, corporate worship. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> these offerings were for sin and for the support of the priests. Today, we give these for the kingdom work, the kingdom ministry, and to support God's ministers. And if any of you are really wondering, do you believe that we should still give a tithe? The answer is yes, I still believe that we should. Tithing is still for the New Testament. And for some of you who don't understand, what does tithing mean? It means give 10% of your income to God's purpose, to God's kingdom. But I understand that for some of us, that is a real stretch to start at 10%. And I also understand for some of us others that to stop at 10% would not be right either. I want you to notice, I talked about four elements, and we saw four elements in these, you know, both the Justin Martyr statement and in the Acts 2.42. But did you notice what's missing in our corporate worship? It's evangelism. Sharing the gospel. So the question is, should we have an aspect of evangelism when we come together as God's people? Or should that be left to the individual or to the work outside of these doors? Ever thought about that? There's actually three philosophies about evangelism and corporate worship. I'm going to use some terms here that I think most of us will understand. I also want you to know that I am not comfortable saying any of these words. And you, if you have a question, I can explain to you why later. The first one is seeker-driven. Some church services, corporate worship services... They have the philosophy, we need to be seeker-driven in our style and our philosophy, which means that the entire corporate worship service is designed for the non-church person, the non-Christian in mind. Then there's seeker-sensitive. This service 
and this philosophy designs the corporate worship for the Christian. But special care is made for the non-church person and, in, and, in, and it intentionally does not, does not make non-church, non-Christians feel uncomfortable. Then there is seeker hostile. There are churches that have a seeker hostile mentality or philosophy. And in their approach, the service is designed for the Christian. But no thought or consideration is made for the non-church person to feel included or welcomed. Let me see if I can explain what I'm talking about here. There are churches that are seeker-driven, and they will have songs like the Beatles, or they will have secular songs during their service to make the non-church person feel, oh, I know that song. I feel comfortable here. I've heard that song, or I've sung that song. And words from the stage or from the platform will directly be more of a contemporary style or a contemporary uh, vocabulary. The seeker-sensitive church, they will have a, a service where they are not afraid to open God's word. They will not be afraid to put a cross up on the wall. And there is a sensitivity that if we use biblical or theological terms, they go out of their way to explain what those mean so that the non-church, non-Christian can feel, oh, okay, I understand what was going on here. But the seeker-hostile church, they will not explain, and they will use terms, and they will use language and vocabulary, and I think many of us have been to places like this, and I'm not saying church, but I'm saying you've been to organizations where they're using inside language that you're like, I don't know what they're talking about. That's seeker-hostile. So let me ask you, what is Village Church? What is our philosophy? Which of those three? Number two, that's right. We're seeker-sensitive, and I'm very comfortable with that. I believe God has always expected the corporate worship of God's people to be sensitive to non-Christians or non-people of God. Our corporate worship, though, must be designed with the child of God, the Christian, in mind. We are to direct our worship to the Lord. That is what we're commanded to do. And Matt talked about that, you know, uh, very well last week. I believe the Apostle Paul would agree with what I'm saying. So I think I'm on good foundation. Let me share with you what he told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14. Because, by the way, that church was pretty whacked out. All right? He said this. He said about their corporate worship. If, therefore, the whole church comes together. Okay, so he's talking about corporate worship there. And all the people, or all speak in tongues, and an outsider, unbelievers, enter. They, the outsiders, the unbelievers, will say, you are out of your minds. And so Paul goes on to explain that it, is, it does no good for a church service to be designed seeker-hostile. All right, let's move on to... What is our proper motivation when it comes to corporate worship? What should, it, what should our hearts, our minds come with when we enter into this house of worship? You would not believe how often I have heard as a pastor, and sometimes people don't even know I'm a pastor and they'll say this, 
you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. How many of you heard that before? Okay. People say that for many different reasons. Maybe they're hoping that it's true, but they're really not sure. Because there are people that think, well, if you don't go to church, you can't be a Christian. Maybe they've been hurt in a church or by someone in the church, and they believe that it's really true. Maybe they just want to give themselves an excuse for not going to church that day. Maybe you and I have even told ourselves that a time or two or three or four or five. Have we not told ourselves, I can be a Christian and I go to church today? Right? Have we not told ourselves that? You guys aren't with me. All right, well, let me just check. Maybe you thought to yourself, I'd rather go to the Church of the Holy Comforter today. Or maybe I would rather go to Bedside Baptist Church today. Maybe I'd rather go to St. Mattress Church today. Maybe I'd rather go to Pastor Pillows and Deacon Sheets today on one of these frigid or cold or rainy Sunday mornings or one of these beautiful Sunday mornings that we have here in Chicago, rather than going to Village Church. Have we all not done that? Yes, we all have done that. Every time I hear that statement, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian, I always want to say this. You know, you're right. You don't need to go to church to be a Christian. But you can't be a Christ follower if you don't go to church. Because... It's that important. Corporate worship is that important. It's that special. I understand that may sound like legalism to some of you, but it's really not legalism. It's why would we not want to come together as God's family and God's people and see our friends and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Why would we not want to do that? As a child of God, we should want to be with our family in Christ and to worship the Lord together. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we want that? Here's the bottom line. The New Testament knows nothing. It knows nothing about Christians growing spiritually outside the local church and regular participation in corporate worship. The, the New Testament knows nothing about you know, uh, monks going off to a distant hill worshiping the Lord individually. Jesus died for the local church, and he desires to give life to the local church. Do you realize that three-fourths of the New Testament is written specifically to local church congregations and to keep their corporate worship working well? All right, so let me talk about what about our motivations. Well, the first and greatest motivation that we should have is a love for God. This is our respect, our love, our adoration, our appreciation for what the Lord has done for us and wants to do through us. It should be our greatest motivation for corporate worship. And as a reminder of this, the Old Testament corporate church worship leaders, they reminded the the Hebrews of this this phrase, and, and I found this six different times in the Old Testament. Listen to what they said. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That was almost a call to corporate worship for the worship leaders in the Old Testament. Then there is the love for God's people. 
And I've kind of mentioned that as an element of fellowship as a part of our corporate worship, but there is this important motivation. I want to love, I want to be loved by my, my, my people, my, my church. As far as Jesus and the New Testament writers are concerned, the Christian life was never meant to live, be lived solo. God has gifted each of us with special gifts and talents to be used to serve and to encourage one another in the local church. And we can't do that alone. He's expecting us to use those gifts and talents inside the local church. Local church corporate worship is as important as someone being a family member, but never doing any of the chores around the house or sitting down to share in a mealtime or to join the family as they come together in a holiday. No one would think it's right to say, yeah, I'm a family member, but I don't participate in any of those things. Right? If we're a family member, we, we want to participate. We want to join the family. We would never think that would be right. And because, because being a family member and joining a, in the corporate worship setting involves that we're in relationship with God's family and with our brothers and sisters. And becoming a Christ follower means that we're a part of that on a regular basis. Now, am I saying you can't miss church every now and then? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying regularly the pattern for the child of God should be, I want to be in corporate worship with my brothers and sisters. The writer of Hebrews challenged those Christians with these words. Let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting the meet, to meet together as is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. See, there was, there was this falling out of corporate worship even in the New Testament times by God's people. And the Hebrew writer says, no, 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 no. It is that important that we come together and worship and encourage one another. There's another motivating factor, and I call him the Holy Spirit. He is the one who empowers and challenges and kind of kicks us out of bed when we want to stay at the Church of the Holy Comforter. In a village church, we believe that corporate worship must be rooted in two things, both spirit and and in truth. Jesus went through a, a whole discourse with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You can look at that up on your own or you can deal with that in your small groups. But he talks about those who worship the Lord must worship him in spirit and in truth. And we believe the Holy Spirit joins us in a unique and special way when we come together as God's family. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Godhead who empowers us and equips us to worship God corporately in a unique and special way and make it acceptable unto the Lord. So let me give you a few cautions here. I love NCAA basketball, and I've been watching, you know, the Final Fours, and, well, we're getting to the Final Fours, but I've been watching, and maybe you have too. But when it comes to seeing, you know, what is the reaction of the people? What is the reaction of the teammates? What is the reaction of God's people during corporate worship? 
I want to caution us on, on a couple of things. People react differently to corporate worship, just like athletes react differently when they win or lose a game. So we need to be very careful in our judgment about our corporate worship based on how others may or may not be reacting. You know, some of us celebrate. We do our time of worship and song, and people are raising their hands, or maybe they're standing there with their hands to their side. Maybe they're standing there with their hands folded. We cannot judge, well, because the person who's waving their hand, their spirit, the, Lord is, the Lord's spirit is working in their heart, and the one that's standing here like this or this, well, the Lord's not working in their heart. We just can't say. Some, some teammates, I notice, congratulate each other, and some don't. Just like when we're in corporate worship and we had our fellowship time where we go by and shake hands, some of us really enjoy that shaking of hands. And some of us are so introverted and so nervous about that, we're like, please, no one come to me right now. And yet we make this judgment that because a person is not going out of their way to say hello to someone else, that God's spirit is not working on their heart. And the ones that are, oh, they're, they're more devoted to Christ. Maybe they're just more outgoing, right? Some people cry. As you can see, I have become a crier over the last few years, which is very strange because for the first 20 years of our marriage, I don't think I ever cried. Grandkids. No, it was teenagers. <laughs> So we need to be careful how we view people's emotions or lack of emotions to know, is God really working here in our corporate worship time or is he not? We all get moved. And I noticed this when I watched the athletes. They are all moved. They're all influenced. They're all changed by the outcome of that sporting contest. And it's the same for us when we come to corporate worship. We may not look changed on the outside, but if God's, God's spirit, God's word is really doing what we expect him to do, things are happening on the inside that we can't explain and maybe can't even see. The second caution I want us to, to consider is we as humans have the ability to stir each other up with a particular environment with a set of emotions that the speaker or the people on the platform might exhibit. Sometimes we can stir these people up and, and stir the congregation up, and it looks like the work of the Holy Spirit, but it may not be. So we need to be very careful again about looking at the emotion to dictate whether the Holy Spirit is working or is not working. Transformal the transformation of a person's heart, the fruit of transformation is the best evidence that God is working in our corporate worship time and in our private worship time. Let me talk a little bit about expectations and distractions. And I'm going to loop, group those two together for, you know, for sake of time. One of the best ways to enhance our corporate worship experience is to come to church with a healthy and a vibrant private worship experience going on throughout the week. Sometimes, 
I, I think I can speak for myself. I won't speak for you. But I expect God to do something here in our corporate worship that I really haven't experienced privately on my own throughout the week. And I expect God to do something miraculous here, which may be okay to have that expectation. But I should, should as a, a child of God, a Christ follower, have those worship experiences on my own at other places throughout the week. But there is this anticipation that we should have when we walk in these doors each week that somewhere during our corporate worship time, God is going to show up in a special way. It may be during the singing of the songs or the prayer time or the offering time or the preaching time or the fellowship time, but we expect and anticipate God to show up in an amazing way. And when we cultivate that attitude and that sense of expectancy, our corporate worship as a body of believers is going to go to a whole new place. Let me just talk a little bit about distractions. In spite of our best emotions and our best motivations, we live in a fallen world and we live with an enemy who does not want us to worship the Lord. Agreed? And that's why on Sunday morning, of all the days throughout the week, our fallen world shows up and Satan shows up to go on attack on that particular morning. Have you experienced it? You know, that's why we get distractions. That's when I open my iPad at 7.30 in the morning and it says, updating. It's like, I didn't tell you to update. No, 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 no. No, don't update. Oh, it's too late. It's already in the process. And it's on Sunday morning. Have you experienced those kind of things? Or you get in an argument with your spouse on the way to church. Does that ever happen? Or the kids start misbehaving on Sunday morning. Now, yesterday, Saturday, they were great. But on Sunday morning, they have some meltdown. The dog runs away when you open the door. You know, you have some craziness going on, like a water pipe <laughs> leaking on Sunday morning. Yeah, that was us. Yeah. Why does it always happen on Sunday morning? You ever ask yourself that? Because we live in a fallen world and we have an enemy who does not want us to enjoy our time of corporate worship. So my challenge and to myself as well as to us, don't let those distractions steal the joy of what it means to worship corporately. So let me just share a couple of so what's. So what? We have the proper elements. We have the proper motivation. We come together. So what? Remember that sextant the little boy was asking what the captain used? Corporate worship is one of those things that keep us aligned and on track in our spiritual journey, just like a GPS does. How many of you actually enjoy hearing your GPS voice say, recalculating, recalculating? And at times we want to, no, I don't want you to recalculate. I know where I'm going. But at times we need to hear that because we're headed in the wrong direction. Corporate worship realigns us, gets us going back in the right direction. We all need each other and we need our time in corporate worship to keep us following, keep us worshiping the Lord in the proper direction, the proper way. 
So how is your motivation today? When it comes to corporate worship, when you come to this time in your week where we come together as God's family, where are you at with your motivation? Have you come with the right heart, with the right attitude, with the right elements, the right thinking? Does that need to change? It does in my heart at times. What about your expectations and your anticipation? Do you come to church because that's just what we do on Sunday morning? Or do you really come with this anticipation, this expectation, God is going to show up in an amazing way somewhere, somehow, during our time together? We should have that expectation. We really should have an expectation that God is going to do something amazing for us or in us during this time of corporate worship. Do you have that when you walk in this door? I hope you do. I hope this time has been challenging and encouraging. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for our time. And as we look to your word, as we've been challenged, as you've challenged even me, that often we go through the flow, we go through the, the routine of just coming to church on Sunday morning, but we really don't come with the right motivation. We really don't come with the right anticipation. We just come because that's what we do. Or we come here with such a low expectation of what you might do that we really don't even see you when you are showing up. So Lord, thank you that we can be changed. We can be changed by what we know, by what we do, and by what we expect. Because you're a God that is a God who wants to show up in our lives. Who not just requires our worship, but enjoys our worship. May we continue to live for you. May we continue to raise your praise high. Not just when we come together in these special times, but throughout the week as well. In Jesus' name, amen.